Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Power 3.0 podcast, looking at authoritarian resurgence and democratic resilience in an era of globalization. Power 3.0 is brought to you by the International Forum for Democratic Studies, the Ideas Center of the National Endowment for Democracy. I'm your host, Christopher Walker, Vice President for Studies and Analysis at the Endowment. And I'm your co-host, Shanti Kalatal, Senior Director of NED's International Forum for Democratic Studies. Since the end of the Cold War, democracies have operated under certain assumptions regarding China's rise. One crucial assumption was that by integrating China into the global economy and the international system, China would gradually undergo meaningful political reform. But things haven't turned out the way so many observers expected. Instead of reforming and liberalizing, the Chinese Communist Party has deepened its authoritarianism and in an era of globalization is turning its authoritarian practices and values outward. Over time, Beijing has refined and scaled up its instruments of influence and, with them, the ability to manipulate the political landscape of countries beyond its borders. To discuss these global influence ambitions, we're pleased to welcome to the Power 3.0 podcast, Marika Olberg a senior fellow in the Asia program at the German Marshall Fund. Together with Clive Hamilton, she is the co-author of the book Hidden Hand, Exposing How the Chinese Communist Party is Reshaping the World. Marika, thanks for joining us from Berlin. Hi, Shanti. Hi, Chris. Thanks so much for having me on here. So why don't we start with current events? Recently, the mood in Europe toward relations with the PRC seems to have shifted. And the most recent example of this is a controversial trip to Taiwan by a Czech delegation led by their Senate president, which has provoked strong reactions not only in China, but also at home in Europe. I was wondering if you could describe what you're seeing in Berlin and how this might relate to some of the big themes that you've explored in your book. So the Czech example is really quite remarkable because the Czech Republic has kind of gone back and forth on China a couple of times from a very critical stance to the president trying to seek closer relations with the Chinese government and the CCP. But now Czech civil society, the Senate, a lot of parliamentarians really rejecting that approach and having had enough with the pressure that China has tried to put on the Czech Republic in the run-up to this visit. Um, China threatened the Czech Republic saying, you know, if you do this, if you go there, we will retaliate against your companies. And they actually went so far as to list specific companies. Now, instead of keeping what, what happened was this letter eventually became public. And that's really something that we have seen a lot more often during the pandemic, that a lot of countries are kind of have had it and are more willing to go public when they're being threatened behind closed doors by the Chinese government or the CCP. But by and large, I mean, I guess Europe Europe is very ambivalent towards China. On the one hand, I think an increasing number of, of governments have really had it, and especially their experience through the pandemic after having helped China fairly quietly behind the scenes being inundated with requests from the Chinese government to thank China publicly in exchange for what was often actually faulty PPE, faulty equipment, has really led to some fatigue. 
and a lot of governments at the same time, especially the larger countries such as Germany, such as France, they, they are still interested in keeping good relations, making sure that their own companies on the Chinese market aren't suffering. So there's this ambivalent relationship that informs European-China policy, and we'll really see where, where it lands. It seems like in reaction to this recent incident with the Czech visit to Taiwan, you started to see a little bit of a different reaction from some of the bigger European countries um, and a willingness to speak publicly about their displeasure at the Czech Republic being threatened and showing some solidarity. Do you think this is part of a larger trend? I do think it's part of Europe getting its act together on China. And basically, I mean, anybody who has worked on this topic, including myself, but also many other China scholars have been saying this for years. It's like, you know, when one of your member states gets threatened, your reaction can't be, yay, it's not us. Your reaction has to be, oh, next time it could be us. So now we really have to band together and show solidarity. And I'm, I'm really happy to actually see even though slowly, you know, these recommendations that we have been making being put into practice um, through these more recent examples. I think that's good. And if Europe can keep it up, it's not the only thing. This is not going to fix everything, but but it, it's good to see this happening now. And Marika, your book takes a, what is really a sweeping look at a whole range of sectors and institutions from think tanks and thought leaders to the cultural sphere, political elites, both in national capitals and in the regions of countries you're examining. It's really quite remarkable how extensive China's engagement is. I wonder if you just take a minute to explain what's really the problem. Uh, China's engaging, they're pursuing their interests and preferences. What is it that democracies and open societies should really be concerned about if you were to focus in on, say, the two or three key issues of concern? I see three issues. One is there is asymmetry in the effort that is being put to this on the Chinese side vis-a-vis -vis what other countries are doing. It's a lot more systematic. The CCP has set up this whole network of party-to-party -party diplomacy, making sure to work with the opposition in addition to working with the parties in power. Local diplomacy, I mean, the party institutions, they're usually amazed at how little effort Western countries put into that local diplomacy and that they don't have a whole department dedicated to that, but maybe one or two people at the city level. So it's a lot more organized. You could say, you know, that's still legitimate, even though I would argue, you know, if, if Western countries were working with Chinese provinces with the explicit purpose of working against the central government, the Chinese government would have strong opinions on that. But you can say, okay, that's, that's fine. To me, it really becomes a problem when those networks are used to exert pressure behind the scenes without transparency, you know, hidden threats, letters being sent to people saying, if you don't do as we please, we will retaliate against your, your national companies. So really, the, the fact that the Chinese government has this power, that countries do feel they need to be on the Chinese market and the willingness to use that economic coercion, um, that, that is really where it becomes problematic also because a lot of that simply doesn't become public. So there's this huge ongoing pressure behind the scenes. And then the third thing that I usually point out when people ask me, so what's the problem is, I tell people I'm not value neutral. 
I do look at what what countries are trying to achieve. So I do make a distinction between, you know, the German government or the French government or any other government having a local initiative in China to build democratic institutions, which they can't they can't do that anymore. But, you know, or to to have a dialogue to to improve the legal system. And the goals that the CCP pursues was, which essentially is making the world safer for itself by getting people to become more accepting and more embracing of its own authoritarian norms. And in that case, I simply say, look, I'm not value neutral. I think the purpose behind that is not in the interest of anyone who is dedicated to democratic institutions, to separation of power, to, you know, transparency um, and the the goals that are being pursued are simply not in our interest. So I, I that's the third point that I usually make. I think that's why we should really pay attention to this and um, get a better grip of what is happening so as to be able to counter it. And so today, compared even with just a few years ago, I would say that many countries have a better grip on what's happening and the risks as well as the potential uh, rewards of engaging with China. And Shanti alluded to the recent visit of the Senate leader to Taiwan. Not all that long ago, the mayor of Prague took a similarly bold stance with respect to an issue concerning a sister city's arrangement that he had with um, a city in China. And I'd like to ask you, Marika, at this stage with awareness raising and more sensitivity to this engagement, what do you feel is the next step in the response? Is, is understanding it sufficient, kind of talking about it, which I think we've done now in a pretty um, significant way, in an important way, but what would you put towards the top of the list in terms of the next steps beyond recognition of the problem? I mean, I still think one understanding is still important. And I don't think, I mean, I think, I feel like in our bubble, like the circles that you and I, that we live in, a lot of people are aware of it. I don't know that it's necessarily the case where, you know, once we look outside our bubble. So I do think getting civil society at large on board and continuing to fix our quote unquote, China illiteracy, that remains important. But nonetheless, I think you're absolutely right. We can't just stop at saying, um, and now we, we understand it, so now it's all good. It does require governments to come together, all levels of civil society to come together at the, you know, at the university level, at the media level, at, you know, cultural institutions, and really figure out proper codes of conduct for how to be able to, if, if you want to keep engaging with China. And I don't think that all engagement necessarily has to stop, but you have to be aware of what the other side wants and how to counter it. So I think that this really is going to have to result in codes of conduct of what do you want to achieve with this engagement with China? You can't just have engagement for engagement's sake or for the old reason that was trotted out for so long that this will change China because clearly the CCP has worked against that. But, you know, what are your codes of conduct, such as transparency, such as making sure that when one in the group is attacked, there's actually a show of solidarity. Like when you have a delegation to China of academics and one of your academics doesn't get a visa, what should the reaction be? And I, I think, quite frankly, the reaction should be that nobody's going, you know, just to figure out how to push back against the strategy that the CCP is pursuing, which is really, you know, isolate a few, make examples of them. Those are the bad people. They have done something wrong. So now we're going to punish them and give everybody else an incentive not to repeat that quote unquote mistakes that, that they made. So this can really only be countered 
a very broad solidarity by pointing it out and saying, look, you can't just hit out against one country, against one member of the delegation, against one media organization. If you do that, we're going to stand together. And, and that's really a very important principle alongside other principles, such as as I already mentioned, transparency, if you have any agreements, like if you sign an MOU with the Chinese side, the default has to be to make it public, make as much information public as possible, map the networks that the Chinese side is building up, consider maybe having, I mean, not only consider, I think this is actually pretty vital, having an incident tracker for repressive incidences when the Chinese side does threaten someone, which often doesn't become public unless, you know, that person decides to go public. Usually I find out when I talk to people that this has happened from them personally, but they may not want to go public. So track what's happening and have this collected more systematically so that you, one, get a better picture of how much threatening and behind doors coercion is actually going on, but also that you can band together and find a way to counter it. So I think there's really a lot of headway that we still have to make to be able to better deal with what is going on without having to shut ourselves off completely, which is also not a solution. So you raise an interesting dynamic because I think some of that awareness raising is happening around the world in various countries at the national level. But to return to a point that you'd made earlier at the local level, those politicians and civil society organizations typically don't know so much about China and they don't see themselves as having responsibility for national security, as you point out in your book. So the focus there is on economic and cultural ties and these local level officials and institutions can basically say there's no political element. But you say pretty straightforwardly in your book that Beijing's logic for subnational influence is pretty clear cut and that Beijing actually sees the cultivation of local level contacts as helping to smooth the way for investment in strategic assets like ports or regional airports, um, satellite development, uh, military bases, agricultural developments, and so on. So there actually is a strong national security component that can be hidden there. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about how this has played out as you've seen it. And I know you cite this one example of Duisburg in Germany, which has partnered with Huawei to become a smart city. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that. Sure. I mean, this is kind of a classic example of CCP-style local diplomacy. The German government does not sign on to the Belt and Road Initiative. It is opposed to it, at the very least very ambivalent towards it. So what the, the CCP has been doing is that it has been looking for local partners, city governments that will actually, you know, sign on to it, will publicly endorse the Belt and Road Initiative. The strategy itself, it's called using the countryside to surround the city, you could call it that. So using local actors or other smaller actors to surround the center of power so that at one point, you know, once all the cities are on board, then the federal government can actually only say, okay, fine, we endorse it too. So that's the larger strategy behind that. But it's a classic in many other ways. You know, you can, you can, of course, argue that from the Duisburg perspective, this is beneficial to them. And I think it's questionable that's entirely beneficial, but I understand where they're coming from. Yet at the same time, you see a lot of the issues that are typical. One being, you know, should a Chinese company like Huawei build the smart city infrastructure? Should that be the case? Or doesn't that have larger ramifications for the security of the infrastructure? We know that this is a bigger a bigger problem. The other is transparency. Um, the city signed an MOU with Huawei after, after a visit of 
mayor to China, and that that's not even public. So I mean, I don't even know that there is anything horrible hiding in there. But I can't even get that public because Huawei doesn't want it to be public. So you know, you have really a lot of problems. One being using local actors to try to overcome resistance of the federal government against the Belt and Road Initiative. The other is you know initiatives being passed without really a good way for the federal government to put a check on that. That are in my opinion, not ideal from the infrastructure perspective, from giving access to a company that in essence needs to cooperate with the Chinese Ministry of State Security, giving them that access to build something so significant that has access to a lot of data. And then the third one being lack of transparency per se, that you know I can't even look up a lot of the details that I as a citizen might want to know. So that really all goes to show that even though I understand that local governments they have their own interests and some of them are legitimate. It's the way that this has been going, and the lack of reflection on what bigger issues you're deciding. We can no longer afford to do that. So we need to come up with better solutions here. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you know the federal government should be allowed to block everything, but it does mean that more information is needed and better coordination is needed and a better strategy that goes beyond. Oh, we got this request and it looks really good, so we're gonna say yes. So we, you know, just be more strategic about what you say yes to. Have everything consider any national security implications and consider the larger picture. And that is where we still have to get. Yeah, I mean, you know, even just a little bit of poking around will identify how, you know, smart city development is actually a key strategic priority that's been highlighted as part of the Belt and Road Initiative. And um, I was looking through a, a U.S.-China Economic and Security Review Commission report from earlier this year on China smart cities development, and they really lay out all of these issues pretty clearly. But those types of insights don't often get to the local level. And so there seems to be some kind of an information gap there. Precisely, and I don't have the perfect solution. And again, the solution can't be to give the federal government all the power to block everything. But both sides have to be willing to work with each other on this one. I think on the local level, there simply needs to be better awareness of this, even if it's just individual cities getting together to talk about this, figure out you know codes of conduct and interacting with Chinese counterparts. That itself would also already be a big step forward in trying to work out. Amongst one another, how to deal with these kinds of requests? How to deal with the Belt and Road Initiative at the local level? Just become more strategic about it, rather than saying, "Oh, there is economic opportunity here, so of course we're going to say yes." Because even though there may be some profit, the the costs may be a lot higher, and in in the end, the actual opportunities may not be as high as I think. We see in the cases of a lot of Belt and Road projects around the world that perhaps you know the cities, the places, the countries where they are, they are not actually benefiting as much as they had hoped. And this point you've just made, Marika, is one that Martin Halla made in a report he produced called "A New Invisible Hand," talking about what were in essence non-economic costs to economic engagement with China. Which I think, as you suggest, many have underappreciated and haven't quite figured out how to devise the right、uh, formula to make that sort of assessment. On that subject, I'd like to ask you because so much of the assumptions with the various partnerships and interactions that have emerged over the years with China have been based on economics and business. 
I was struck in your book on how much you focus on what might be called the ideas ecosystem. And here I would include in it the think tanks and thought leaders that you look at, the various media initiatives, political elites. And maybe you could just give us a sense of why it is the Chinese authorities are so keen to invest in and focus on this ideas ecosystem within democratic societies. Right. So one thing that we kind of tried in this book is to look at this the way that the CCP looks at this. And one thing that I think is important to understand, other than, you know, just economic coercion and trying to set up alternative frameworks like the Belt and Road, really is how much of the ambition of the CCP is focused towards reshaping ideas and how people think and talk about, you know, of course about China, but about really anything that is of interest to the CCP. This began being discussed in China. It's been discussed over the last couple of decades under the label of ideological security. The larger idea here being, look, in the 1990s, after the Cold War, the CCP found itself on a world that was kind of hostile towards the remaining dictatorships. And the initial reaction to that was, you know, we're going to have to institute patriotic education for our own citizens. We have to make sure that we have internet censorship, that as China adopted the internet, the CCP made sure that there was censorship, that you had all the instruments associated with what's known as the Great Firewall, so that you kind of tighten what information comes into China. But over the years, the idea spread inside the party that, you know, you can't really always fight off ideas at your own border. In order to gain the initiative and to be more proactive, you really have to take the fight beyond your borders. And you have to win the war of ideas the war over global public opinion outside your own borders. So then when you gain acceptance worldwide for the idea that democracy is a system of the past, that might have been a good idea in the 20th century, but it's really not it's not equipped to cope with the problems of the 21st century, whereas our system, the one that we have, is precisely the system for the 21st century. If you gain wide acceptance for that globally, then you don't have to worry so much anymore about what kind of hostile, horrible ideas trickle through your great firewall. You're basically controlling the global debate at a much higher level. It sounds very, very ambitious, and by that I don't mean that the CCP is hoping to turn every country in the world into an autocratic system like itself, but it does want to have acceptance and respect for the political ideas that it stands for. And this is why it is investing so much into anything that has impact on how people think and talk about these concepts, about larger issues of governance. That's why there's such a large focus. It is a key part of the party's long-term ideological security that it considers vital to be able to stay in power. And I think you've raised a really important point and a fine distinction between this idea that the authorities in Beijing necessarily want to replicate their model on the one hand, which some people believe to be the case, and on the other, as you're, I think, saying, simply want to neutralize or undermine the idea that other systems, democratic systems in particular, are effective and therefore ensure a greater degree of security for regime interests in China. Precisely. I mean, again, if some countries adopt aspects of the Chinese system, I'm sure the CCP isn't going to complain about that. But this is not the main goal. This is not about wholesale systematic export of the Chinese system of governance to countries around the world. 
in part, this is happening, but this is not the main goal. It really is about acceptance and changing the debate, changing how people talk about the Chinese system and making sure that there is global support for it that can then trickle back into China and really boost regime security at home and, of course, in all the things that China does around the world. It also helps if you're seen as legitimate, up-to-date, great political system internationally rather than, you know has an outcast problematic dictatorship. But the main audience really here is at home to secure long-term regime security in China. So we've spent some time talking about how democracies can make themselves more resilient to authoritarian interference. And, you know, you talk about all the different levers in your book, including ways in which Beijing tries to coerce and mobilize diaspora populations. And I just have to point out, we are really sadly and undeniably, unfortunately, in a climate of xenophobia and nationalism around the world. So I want to ask you how democratic societies can ensure they're being vigilant about authoritarian interference, but also safeguard the rights of minority and immigrant populations. And, you know, particularly people of Chinese heritage living in in Europe, how can their rights be safeguarded and how can we ensure that democracies actually hew to their own principles in addressing authoritarian interference? Again, I think it's really important to focus on some key principles and countering this, meaning transparency, countering China illiteracy. That includes this point that is being consistently put out that the CCP stands for China, it stands for the Chinese people. It's just, you know, recently reiterated that there is no separation between China and the CCP. So to counter that quite vocally and to, you know, ensure that no, the CCP is, you know, is one party. It's an important party. It has a lot of power in China, but it is not China. Um, to look towards solidarity, education. In some cases, I mean, I think there are some issues that are hard to solve, such as, you know, technology transfer. But again, I think there, with more information, more scrutiny, a better understanding of the institutions that the party uses to approach others, a lot can already be done. Our tendency is, you know, we have this debate about Chinese influence, which I don't like. I call it CCP influence because I think that puts the focus on the party. And unfortunate reaction is you go for the people that don't have a lot of power and that can't really fight back. So instead of criticizing the powerful institutions that actually make decisions that are bad for democracy, such as, you know, criticizing the university administration for cooperating with party-led universities in China, people like to then point at Chinese people and say, you know, there was, those are the real problems. And no, they're not. Scrutinize the decisions of the people who have power in a society and try to change what they do. Don't go for people who may or may not support the CCP at home. I don't even care. I think there's uh, people of Chinese heritage. They have a very broad range of views on the party. Some people have fled from the party. Some don't particularly like the party, but feel that China is being unfairly portrayed in Western media. There's a really a broad range, but don't go for people that don't have a lot of power. And I think if everybody keeps that principle in mind, a lot of that is already solved. And I think there really is, you know, if you're looking at institutions, there is quite a bit of ground that institutions can cover simply from their own policies that would go a long way towards addressing some of these questions. And that's not something I, I think we've really seen happening en masse so far. No, it's a difficult problem to address. 
And it is for many institutions, it is also simply costly to address because, yes, a lot of institutions benefit from those corporations with party institutions. So it's not in their natural interest to try to question that. But ultimately, that is what is going to have to happen. And it's going to have to happen at a civil society level, because I don't think there really is a great solution that is top down from, you know, a federal government and regardless in which country. This is going to a lot of this is going to have to come from civil society itself in trying to solve these problems. Governments can do stuff to facilitate this, but most of it's going to have to be bottom-up rather than top-down. Before we wrap up our conversation, I'd like to conclude with our final segment called What We're Reading, where we discuss what's at the top of our respective reading lists and might recommend to our listeners. Why don't we start with Marika? Marika, what are you reading? What am I reading? I'm reading Eichmann in Jerusalem by Hannah Arendt because I am currently going through a phase where I'm trying to understand more about, you know, complicity, how these things happen. So that is what I'm currently reading. And then next up on my reading list is Stories of the Sahara by the author Sun Mao that was um, translated by my friend Mike Fu. That, that is what is up next. Great. Thanks for that. And Shanti, what are you reading? So I'm reading a new report called Authoritarian Shadows in the European Union by the think tank Political Capital. It's the culmination of a year-long research project that covered the foreign policy-related votes of members of the European Parliament in the current parliamentary cycle. And it focuses in particular on seven Central and Southeastern European countries. You have the Visegrad Four, the Czech Republic, Hungary, Poland, Slovakia, as well as Austria, Romania, and Bulgaria. And it's interesting because it tries to quantify the vulnerability to authoritarian influence, including by the Russian Federation and the PRC. So they have a number of interesting findings, uh, one of which is that outside authoritarian powers like Russia and China usually have a more challenging time influencing European institutions than national institutions. And relatedly, authoritarian pressure within the European Union is seemingly effectively applied through member states via bilateral connections rather than through the European Union. They also found that while the European Parliament seems generally more resilient as an institution to outside authoritarian powers pressure, fringe parliamentary groups on the far right and the far left are the most supportive of authoritarian regimes. So there are many other interesting findings. I won't go through all of them, but I do recommend checking it out. And for my part, I'm reading the Chinese Communist Party's Coercive Diplomacy, a report by Fergus Hansen, Amelia Curry, and Tracy Beattie, that was recently published by the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. The report explains how the CCP is increasingly using coercive diplomacy against foreign governments and companies. This form of diplomacy isn't well understood, and countries and companies have struggled to develop effective responses to push back against it. The report tracks the CCP's use of coercive diplomacy over the past decade, identifying more than 150 cases of such diplomacy affecting 27 countries, as well as the European Union. The data show that there's been a sharp escalation in these tactics since 2018. The report makes clear that this is a global phenomenon. The regions and countries that recorded the most instances of this problem over the last decade include Europe, North America, Australia, New Zealand, and East Asia. According to the authors, a coordinated and sustained international effort by foreign governments and companies would include, among other measures, increased global situational awareness about the widespread use of coercive diplomacy and the most effective strategies to counter it, 
and responses marshaled through coordinated and joint pushback through multilateral forums and by building smaller coalitions of states affected by these coercive methods. This is a timely publication, well worth reading. Well, thank you very much, Marika, for joining us today on the podcast. Thanks so much again for having me, Shanti. That's all for today's episode of the Power 3.0 podcast. For more on the topic we discussed today, we recommend reading Hidden Hand, Exposing How the Chinese Communist Party is Reshaping the World, co-authored by Clive Hamilton and Marika Olberg, released this fall here in the U.S. For further analysis of the themes we discussed today and will be examining in future podcast episodes, visit our blog, Power 3.0, Understanding Modern Authoritarian Influence. We also invite you to join the conversation with us on Facebook and Twitter, where you can find us using the handle at ThinkDemocracy. Additional resources are available on the NED website at www.ned.org ideas. If you enjoyed today's show, please rate us on iTunes, Google Play, or whichever podcast app you use. Special thanks to our podcast production team at the International Forum, producer Jessica Ludwig, and our editing and sound engineer, Rochelle Faust. I'm Shanti Kalathal with Christopher Walker and Marika Olberg. We hope you enjoyed this discussion on China, the party, and the world, and invite you to tune in again for future Power 3.0 podcasts.